Welcome to the third installment of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. Over the course of this six-part series, we will be providing practical advice for both technology companies and companies who do business with technology companies. We will focus on ways to safeguard projects from potential disputes, as well as later in the series offering some thoughts on how to deal with a dispute should one arise. The series is also accompanied by a number of related articles, which will be published on the DLAPiper.com website. Hello, I'm Simon Kenyon, a litigation and regulatory partner at DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and international technology disputes practices. I'm joined today by my colleague Joe Cater, a senior associate in our technology disputes team. Both Joe and I specialise in providing legal advice regarding disputes related to technology contracts, and we welcome you to this, the third episode in our podcast series. We're delighted to be presenting this podcast series and you will hear from us and others in DLA Piper's technology disputes team over the coming weeks. So in the first two episodes of this series, we looked at how to dispute-proof your technology contract and how to operate it to your advantage. Today, we're going to discuss how organisations can best prepare themselves for potential restrictions on claims in technology contracts for when things go wrong. So, Joe, when should parties be turning their mind to the often difficult issue of when and how they might have to make a claim? Thanks, Simon. Well, in-house lawyers and people in operational roles who work on tech contracts will be used to that familiar dilemma when negotiating a contract between, on the one hand, keeping all the momentum and goodwill going that sits behind a new deal, and at the same time trying to protect their business interest for when things go wrong. At the outset of the deal, it's definitely the first time people should be thinking about what potential issues might arise and how the business would, in practical terms, protect itself should things go wrong. Then, of course, there's the more obvious time about a potential dispute, and that is when things do start to go awry. Okay, so just taking a step back, when you say potential issues, what do you mean by that? Well, we often see clients come to us completely unaware of how any attempt by their business to recover their losses potential or actual, might be restrained either by matters of general law or under the contract. In particular, in terms of contractual restrictions, there's a whole host of ways in which a claim might be restricted that clients aren't usually aware of. Okay, so first of all then, the starting point is establishing what the basis of any claim might be, and that usually first involves identifying the contractual obligation that's been breached. Now, People come to us and often think that should be as straightforward as the other party said they'd do X and they didn't, so they need to compensate us. But as we know, it's seldom as easy as that, is it? No, not necessarily. Uh, If something is written into the contract, then identifying that obligation as the basis of a claim might be straightforward. But people expect parties to be true to their word, irrespective of what is written in black and white. And it is true that there are ways in which things said but not expressly recorded in the written contract can form the basis of a claim. So one example is where a court is compelled to imply a term if it is necessary to make the contract work, though the threshold to convince a court to do that is quite high. Another example is where there has been an actionable misrepresentation. But generally speaking, there are usually contractual clauses in place which confine the parties to claims founded in certain documents usually the central contract governing the relationship. And it's not necessarily the case that statements or promises made outside of the contract aren't enforceable, but where there is a, a, quote, entire agreement clause, a volume of communications which take place outside of the contract, which may be very important, but still not recorded in the written agreement, 
might not be enforceable by a claim. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about entire agreement clauses then, shall we, briefly. Can you just explain what they are and what they do? So an entire agreement clause is one of a range of boilerplate clauses that you will typically find in most, if not all, contracts. And the idea that after the parties have been through extensive sales, technical, operational discussions, etc., some or most of all of which will not have been recorded in writing, the parties can rely on an entire agreement clause, which will state something along the lines that the written terms of the agreement are the only contractual terms which exist between the parties. And there's a good way of explaining it from Mr Justice Lightman in the Entrepreneur Pub Company case, in that they are intended to stop people from, quote, thrashing through the undergrowth and finding some chance remark or statement, often long forgotten or difficult to explain, upon which to found a claim. So those clauses are particularly significant in bespoke tech deals, where operational specialists would have had extensive and detailed conversations about the party systems before the contract is entered into. Sure, though, as you hinted at there, these clauses do have their limits, don't they? Yes, far too many to go into detail on on this podcast, but it's safe to say that the existence of an entire agreement clause won't always prevent a party from relying on a statement made by the other party, which isn't written into the contract, to found a claim. It's not a licence for salespeople to be liberal with the capabilities of their product, for instance. An actionable misrepresentation can still form a claim despite an entire agreement clause. See, for example, the Nottingham Forest case. But for those out-of-contract statements that don't amount to misrepresentations, any claim to contractual effect will be nullified by this kind of clause. And how would you suggest that these kinds of clause should perhaps shape a party's thinking at, at the outset of a deal? So entire agreement clauses tend to go unnoticed and they sit rather uncontroversially in most contracts, first drafts and don't get negotiated. And if there's one in there, you should really pay it special attention because you need to ensure that any important technical detail that upon which the project is built is included within the written agreement. So we're used to seeing contract plans, for instance, and technical specs, etc., annexed to agreements, even by way of, say, a CD or a media file being referred to, just to make sure the detail's captured. Okay, so assuming we can identify an obligation that's been breached on which to base a claim, there are other restrictions outside of the contract, aren't there? For example, under the general common law. Yeah, so broadly speaking, the law lets two commercial parties dictate the terms of their agreement. And ordinarily, that's done by getting something written down and signed, i.e. the contract. But against that background, the law acknowledges there's a whole host of areas a party is unlikely to consider when documenting its deal. So there's a framework that operates in the background that does not necessarily need to be expressly written into a contract to affect the way a deal operates. That framework comes from a whole host of decisions of the courts over the years gone by, which is referred to as common law. Okay, so let's just explore that a little bit then. How will the common law shape a technology claim potentially? So the general rule for breach of contract is that an aggrieved party should be placed in the same situation with respect to a payment of compensation or damages, as it is called, as if the contract had been properly performed. The damages award is intended to be, so far as money can do it, a substitute for actual performance of the contract. So when considering what are we entitled to as a result of another party's breach, that's the starting point. So in other words, I guess, and similar to what I was saying earlier, that sounds a lot like you've not performed and 
that means I've suffered a loss, so I want you to compensate me for that loss. All of which sounds straightforward, but there's got to be more to it than that, presumably. As always. So, according to a well-established law, all losses which are, in theory, recoverable fall into two categories. Direct loss, i.e. those natural results of the breach, which considered to include lost profits. And indirect loss, those that arise from a special circumstance in that case. Parties can only recover what, in the usual course of things, would have been contemplatable by both parties at the time the contract was made. That makes the first limb of losses, i.e. direct losses, normally recoverable, but the second category of loss only recoverable in the narrow circumstances that the breaching party was made aware of it at the time of contracting. So that puts more emphasis on those discussions at the outset. Consider if you're bringing in a tech solution because you have a particular client relationship to service, and the chances of you recovering losses associated with failing to service that client relationship, if the tech project goes awry, will be significantly improved if the tech supplier knows at the outset the purpose of your programme and why you're bringing it into the business. If the supplier is completely in the dark about that, it'll be easier for them to argue that onward losses like that particular relationship are not even indirect losses, and so are too remote to be included in a claim. And what they would do is they would look for some kind of way of arguing that that client relationship was unique or special in any way, and so not foreseeable when the deal was done. Now, I should note too that some losses a party can reasonably have been regarded as resuming responsibility for itself. So uh, that's fact specific, but think of the taxi driver forced to race to an airport for a late customer. If the taxi driver isn't on time in getting to the airport, they're still not paying for the flight. Okay, I see that. So are there some other common law restrictions we might want to think of as well? Yeah, definitely. So the aggrieved party is also under a duty to mitigate its loss. So let's say, for example, a software program has been purchased and a supplier charged with implementing the program to try to stop a business losing costs on a daily basis because of general inefficiencies. The program isn't bespoke, there's a few available on the market, but is selected ahead of others on, say, the basis of price. Well, if the developer fails to implement on time, and the business continues to lose more money because of these unidentified inefficiencies, There would come a time where it might be incumbent on the business to go back into the market and try to work with an alternative programme. Again, it's fact-specific. It might not always be that easy. I mean, for instance, unravelling the work done with the breaching supplier might itself come with expenses that would make it better to stick with the existing, albeit late, programme. But generally, the law won't compensate a party for losses that it could and should have limited itself by taking steps to mitigate, or perhaps rescue is a better word, its position to some degree. Okay, so let's move on then to another common clause in technology contracts relating to liquidated damages, and an example of that being service credits. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so one of the usual conundrums in a tech claim is defining how much a party should be paid in compensation for a breach. And so to try to avoid arguments like that at a later stage, it's open to the parties at the time of contracting to agree that a specific amount or an amount calculated by reference to a specific formula is payable in response to a certain anticipated breach, i.e. in the circumstances of late delivery. Sometimes additional care has to be taken with that kind of clause, though, as it might even be expressed to be the only remedy available to the party when that kind of breach occurs. 
Okay, so what you seem to be talking about there are clauses which are freely negotiated between the parties. And in a free market, one might expect freedom of contract, where the parties, generally speaking, can, as long as what they're doing is not illegal and doesn't harm anybody else, agree whatever the contractual clauses they want to have in there. So on that basis, will liquidated damages clauses always be enforceable? Hmm. So parties need to be careful when defining an amount payable in response to a breach before it arises, so-called liquidated damages clauses, because if the sum payable isn't appropriately set, it can be rendered an unenforceable penalty. The leading authority on that is two cases heard together, one involving the commonly frustrating instance of a parking notice, funnily enough, Cavendish Square Holding in MacDessy and Parking Eye Limited in Beavis. And that judgment confirmed that a liquidated damage slash service credit clause would not be a penalty if, one, the party to whom the sum is payable had a legitimate interest in ensuring performance by the other party, and two, the sum payable is not extravagant or unconscionable in comparison to that interest. So a good way of thinking about it is, does the amount payable extravagantly exceed a genuine attempt to estimate in advance the loss which the claimant would be likely to suffer? So when the prospect of a service credit or other liquidated damages clause arises, take a second look and have a think about how that number was reached. Yeah, absolutely. And and recent case law has suggested, I think, that a clause can have a very harsh outcome financially for one party, but still be enforceable. So moving on then, of course, if a clause is struck down, a liquidated damages clause is struck down, then subject to other limitations or exclusions in the contract, the party may not be able to rely on such a clause. They may instead, though, still bring a damages claim. And in doing so, will have the additional challenge of proving their actual loss. So I think it's probably time to look at exclusion and limitation of liability clauses, a difficult area, uh, and one I suspect we could talk about for a lot longer than we have. But in simple terms, what are they? Yeah, well, in headline terms, they do what they say on the tin. An exclusion clause seeks to exclude a party from liability for a certain kind of loss, and a limitation clause will seek to cap a liability at a certain sum, often, for example, the contract value or a proportion of it. Unsurprisingly, these kinds of clauses are used to limit claims for the types of losses that tend to have the highest value and, as a consequence, have been heavily litigated before the courts. Okay, then, with that in mind, what should the parties be watching out for then? Well, one of the reasons these clauses tend to be so heavily litigated is because they often have very difficult to define boundaries. So, in terms of excluding liability for a type of loss, it is not uncommon to see a clause that says, X will not be liable for loss of profits, damage to reputation or goodwill, or wasted expenditure, etc. Okay, and and the IBM case last year is a good example of those difficult to define boundaries you're referring to, isn't it? Where it really all comes down to what the contractual clause actually means? Absolutely. And that is a confusing one when compared with another recent decision from a few years prior in the Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust case. Basically, when faced with two very similar clauses, the court in one case permitted the recovery of a loss and in the other did not. So let's look at those two clauses. In CIS and IBM, the court determined that a claim for wasted expenditure by CIS in the value of £128 million as well was barred by an exclusion clause which excluded any claim by either party for loss of profit, revenue, savings, including anticipated savings, 
in all cases, whether direct or indirect. Whereas in Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, the court, and it was the same judge in both cases, had found that an exclusion of liability provision which stated, quote, neither party shall be liable to the other for loss of profits or of business or of revenue or of goodwill or of anticipated savings and or indirect or consequential loss of damage. So very similar to the later clause, which was the subject of the CIS and IBM dispute, did not bar the trust's claim for wasted expenditure. And the distinction between the two decisions noted in the IBM judgment was that the trust's loss was a non-pecuniary benefit that was not caught by the exclusion. So it occurs to us the parameters of what amounts to a non-pecuniary benefit at this point in time seem rife for argument. Yeah, that's right. They certainly do for now. And it's worth saying we've actually done some training for a number of supplier side and customer side clients in the last 12 months on the implications of a number of aspects of that IBM case. And at the time of recording, the IBM case is about to be heard by the Court of Appeal on that very point as to whether the exclusion of liability clause defeated the substantial claims that you've mentioned there, Joe. So with that in mind, what considerations should suppliers and customers have regarding these sorts of clauses? Well, as a supplier, the lesson is always to include clauses like this in an attempt to protect your interests against potentially substantial liabilities in the event of default. But at the same time, have it in the back of your mind that they are not always upheld before court. It is important to note that the case law in this area develops at pace. And as you have alluded to there, Simon, the IBM judgment may also be subject to a different determination on appeal. But the message as a supplier is, if the clause is in there, you at least have the argument to hand should you need it, things go awry. As a customer, as you'd expect, the consideration is very much the reverse. So most customers with negotiating power will be looking to limit the scope of this kind of clause anyway. But if you find yourself in a dispute and such a clause is included in the agreement, then the argument about excluding those categories of loss might still not be insurmountable. It's a very complicated area of law where the need for good advice is paramount. It can particularly affect the dynamic of any settlement discussions. Yeah, absolutely. I think the difficulty is those types of loss often relate to the very things that the contract is designed to cure, to obtain profits for a business by servicing their clients' demands. Is it really the case, though, that a party can exclude its liability for losses which arise and go to the very heart of the contract? Well, most parties try, and a good amount are successful, but there are a number of restrictions in place which apply to these kinds of clauses alone that are also worth consideration. In certain circumstances, limitations on liability are subject to a reasonableness test under the Unfair Contract Terms Act. That can apply to bespoke negotiated contracts, but it has a wider scope where a party deals on what's called its standard terms, i.e. terms that get accepted by another party without any discussion or negotiation. So when confronted with this type of clause, always consider whether the reasonableness test will apply, first of all. And I should note as well, there's also a range of other statutory restrictions which should be considered on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Probably not time to go into those today, but that's a really clear explanation. Thank you for that. So in conclusion, then, any final thoughts to finish with? Yeah, I suppose it's important to place limited emphasis on general rules and trends in contract law. Because as we can see from some of the decisions discussed in this podcast, courts will always determine the contract before them on its express wording against the commercial context of the agreement between the parties, and that usually influences the outcome of a decision. 
We have not given an exhaustive account of all the restrictions that might apply to a claim. In fact, we barely scratched the surface. But hopefully, this has proven a useful signpost exercise to those involved in negotiating these kind of contracts of the kind of restrictions to look out for when a deal might go awry. Thanks, Joe. That's excellent. So that about wraps it up for the third episode of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Please look out for the article which accompanies this episode, which will shortly be available on the DLAPiper.com website, where there's also information about the training we've delivered on the IBM Syscall case that we mentioned earlier. Also, look out for episode four, which will be available later in the year, when I'll be joined by another colleague to explore best practice for navigating breaches and exercising rights of termination effectively in the context of a technology contract. Thank you for listening.